When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation. Our Whistle Stop today is July 6, 1979, and we are at the Aspen Lodge of the Presidential Retreat of Camp David in the leafy Catoctin Mountains. Sitting on the floor, propped up against a pillow, and pressing his pen with purpose into the curling pages of a yellow legal pad is none other than the 39th president of the United States, Jimmy Carter. He's been taking notes since July the 3rd when he was returning from a summit in Japan on his way to vacation in Hawaii. But on Air Force One, he was briefed about the situation back in the States. A trucker strike had been added to the domestic list of woes and Carter's poll numbers were melting. His pollster, Pat Cadell, had told him, quote, you have to come home now. You have no idea how bad it is here. Carter canceled the vacation and began a 10-day secluded hiatus of introspection and presidential reclamation. This is the story of the Democratic nominating fight in 1980 between incumbent Jimmy Carter and Massachusetts Senator Edward Kennedy. This is the second election cycle in a row where a powerful voice for the party base would challenge a sitting president. In 1884... Chester Arthur was the last president who had not been renominated by his party. Arthur was also the last president to have facial hair mistaken for a garden shrub. In 1976, Ronald Reagan tried to be the first challenger to toss an incumbent, as faithful whistle-stop listeners know, and Reagan made it all the way to the brokered convention. In 1980, it was the Democratic Party's turn to have a debilitating fight over principles. Carter was dubbed a failed leader, and though he would be considered a liberal today, and Republicans used him as the great liberal boogeyman, he was not sufficiently liberal for Ted Kennedy or a lot of Democrats in the party. So... In 1980, this was a battle of personal ambition. On the one hand, you had the out-of-nowhere Southern governor who'd gone on to victory in 1976, surprising everyone against the scion of America's great political family. But it was also an ideological battle over whether the New Deal could still have a modern champion. We've already hung the death of liberalism on McGovern's loss in 1972. You'll remember the whistle stop. But some think this period and the fight in 1980 is the better peg for that death of liberalism. Normally, this is the portion in the show where I tell you what I'm going to tell you. And so I should be a little more definitive about where we're going to come down on that question. But this story, and particularly this first chapter in what will be a two-part story, is about unfocused beginnings and a candidate, Ted Kennedy, who couldn't explain why he wanted to be president. 
When he was asked that question by CBS newsman Roger Mudd, it was a famous and epic swing and a miss on Kennedy's part, and it has become such a staple of American campaign memory that the Mudd interview, along with Muskie's tears, the Kennedy-Nixon debate, Truman's 1948 train trip, are all included in the special Whistle Stop Christmas starter set. Whatever we conclude by the time we're done here in our second chapter of this, we will be firm in the conviction that the devastating Carter versus Kennedy fight helped to crush Carter's chances in the general election and marked the end of speculation about Kennedy as a possible president, a question that Democrats had been asking since 1968 after Robert Kennedy was assassinated. The reason we started on the floor at Camp David is that Carter's doldrums in the summer of 1979 and his effort to rescue himself are what finally pulled Kennedy into the race. When Carter was giving his legal pad the heavy treatment, he was suffering grim approval ratings. Just 28% of the country approved of the job he was doing, according to a June Gallup poll. Only three months earlier, he delivered Israeli-Egyptian peace, which is a huge deal, but the country didn't care about that. Inflation was up past 10%. The unemployment rate was about 7%. GDP was negative, and the country was in recession. It was also the summer of gas lines. On the evening news, it seemed every night there was a different angry man with long hair pushing his mammoth vehicle towards some exhausted pump his wide lapels waving, and his trousers with plenty of room in the ankle. Carter had gone to Camp David to work on his fifth energy speech to deal with these long gas lines, the fifth of his presidency, but he soon realized that basically everybody had stopped listening to him. This is from Rosalind Carter, his wife. Jimmy had made several speeches on energy, and it just seemed to be going nowhere with the public. So he just said, I'm not going to make the speech. Instead, what Carter did at Camp David after, of course, remember canceling his vacation, was he decided to invite a host of different voices. He was following up on the campaign promise he had made in 1976 to never get too distant from the people. So he would invite lots of people to come by Camp David, and he would sit and listen to those voices and then bundle it all together into a speech that would explain the country to itself and show the country the way forward. I felt a remarkable sense of relief and renewed confidence, wrote Carter in his diary after making this choice. After I canceled my energy speech and began to shape the thoughts I would put into the next week's work. This commenced one of the great acts of presidential navel-gazing in modern memory. Over a period of eight days, nearly 150 different people came through Camp David. He brought in historians, policy experts, preachers, teachers, newsmen and women and wise men of Washington, like Clark Clifford, who you'll remember from the 1948 Truman whistle-stop campaign. It was Clifford who helped orchestrate Truman's comeback. And Clifford and Carter went on a bike ride, except that Clifford hadn't been on a bike in some number of years. So he had trouble with the gears and wiped out, threatening the proper crease in his chinos. The sessions were brutal. The president sat there dutifully taking down notes as visitor after visitor just told him basically how poorly he was doing and how he disappointed the country. One of the frank talkers was Bill Clinton, the governor of Arkansas, who told Carter that his administration was withdrawn and stilted. Out of this series of meetings was born Carter's crisis of confidence speech in which the president on the third anniversary of his nomination told the nation that the nation was experiencing a crisis of confidence and he asked people for a renewal of faith in the future 
of this nation. This became known as the Malay's speech, a term that was never used in the actual speech, but had been used internally. When that fact leaked, it would forevermore become associated with that address and with that period of the Carter presidency. In fact, when Kennedy later launched his campaign, he named his campaign plane Air Malays. Here's how Carter starts the speech. It's clear that the true problems of our nation are much deeper, deeper than gasoline lines or energy shortages, deeper even than inflation or recession. And I realize more than ever that as president, I need your help. In a speech Carter quoted from Bill Clinton, though he only called him a Southern governor. And here is Carter reading Bill Clinton's advice that he had so accurately transcribed on those legal pads. This from a Southern governor. Mr. President, you're not leading this nation. You're just managing the government. You don't see the people enough anymore. Some of your cabinet members don't seem loyal. There is not enough discipline among your disciples. Don't talk to us about politics or the mechanics of government, but about an understanding of our common good. Mr. President, we are in trouble. Talk to us about blood and sweat and tears. So let us pause here for a moment in our narrative. There's so much going on in Jimmy Carter reading Bill Clinton's advice. First of all, Carter starts the address by reminding people that he promised to be a president who felt your pain. So that's a phrase that we've all come to associate with Bill Clinton because he used it in his campaigns. But that line, I feel your pain, is actually from Carter's 1976 campaign. That notion of showing empathy with people and their plight, which Carter was trying to do in this speech from the Oval Office, the Crisis of Confidence speech, for which he would later be derided because that speech, as we'll get to in a minute, would be seen as kind of a low ebb for Carter. That is the same empathy approach, the same empathy pitch that is like at the center of Clinton's success, that when people talk about Clinton and why he was successful, they say it was because he was able to deliver the Democratic Party from the doldrums after the Carter years by making this empathetic connection with voters. Well, here we have 12 years before Clinton's successful 1992 campaign. Here we have Carter trying to deliver the same kind of empathetic message. But there's more in this that's great. The last bit where Clinton advises Carter to talk about blood and sweat and tears. What he was advocating is that Carter could get himself out of the political trouble by showing how hard he was working and how he could then show that that hard work matched with the struggle of everyday regular people. Well, that is the Clinton playbook. That, as we talked about in the 1992 whistle stop, that's what Clinton did when he was in trouble in New Hampshire. It's what he did throughout his presidency. And it's what he's advising his wife to do as she runs her campaign. Think about how many times she's talked about being a fighter. In other words, who cares about all this other stuff that's going on? I'm going to be out there fighting for you. And so at this point, we need to play the clip that we didn't play in the 1992 Whistle Stop episode, which is the signature clip of Bill Clinton employing this strategy 
of talking about how hard he will fight as a way to extricate himself from political trouble. I'll tell you something. I'm going to give you this election back. And if you give it to me, I won't be like George Bush. I'll never forget who gave me a second chance. And I'll be there for you till the last dog dies. And I want you to so that's Clinton using the advice he had given to Carter 12 years earlier in 1980 that Carter is then reading from the Oval Office in this famous speech. So back to our story. The speech has come to be considered kind of a bomb in history, but it wasn't seen that way at the time. Carter received praise, snap polls showed that people really liked it. And so you can make the case that this speech, the Malay speech, which has come to be seen as like the biggest loser act of a modern president, was in real time not a big loser act and has just been stained by the events that have come after it. The big event that caused the trouble for Carter was that several days after the speech, he announced that he had asked for the resignation of all of the members of his cabinet, (laughs) cabinet level officials and senior White House staff, 34 people in all. It was seen for a president and a candidate in 1976 and a president who had talked about like not panicking. It seemed like panic. It seemed chaotic and desperate. Carter was tone deaf to this idea. Here's what he wrote in his diary. At the time, the news reports, predictably, made a crisis of the cabinet offering their resignation, ignoring that the cabinet resigned in support of me to give me a clear hand in handling replacements. That was not the picture that people got. The picture was of disarray and self-absorbed confusion, and it led to the quip that Carter was going to be the first president whose approval rating would slip below inflation. So at this point, everyone turns to Kennedy. Kennedy had heard lots of calls for him to run for president since 1968 when his brother Bobby was assassinated. People had been coming up to him and saying, please run for president. When are you going to run for president? He had a standard dodge in the 1980 or in 1979, I should say. And his standard dodge, as Paul Bollinger writes in his great book on presidential campaigns, was the E, E, and I answer, which is to say Kennedy would say he expected Carter to be renominated, he expected him to be reelected, and he intended to support him. So this is, of course, an obvious dodge, right? I have no plans at the moment to run for president, but then tomorrow you decide you do have plans and you run. And so it still allows for the fact that Kennedy could launch a campaign. What pulled Kennedy in was this disastrous performance by the president and the polls in August, a Gallup poll of 1979, August of 1979, showed that Kennedy was ahead of Carter among Democrats, 55 percent to 28 percent. Now, this is where I've decided to drop the needle on the record player, but others who have told the Kennedy 1980 tale put the needle down in a different place. For me, it's the seance at Camp David and the events over the next two weeks that pull Kennedy in. And that's certainly true. But others, including my old boss at Time Magazine, John Stacks, who wrote a great book called Watershed, would start their version of Whistle Stop at the Democratic Party meeting in Memphis, Tennessee in 1978, in December of 1978. This was a midterm meeting for Democrats. It was kind of a restless affair. And we should stop here for a moment and think that Democrats are having a restless self-examination in December of 1978. You'll remember in the 1976 Ford-Reagan fight, the huge debate in the Republican Party was how the party, after being in such horrible straits, could repair itself. Remember, Republicans are people too, the ad campaign by the Republican National Committee. So just two years later, the Democratic Party is having its own soul-searching moment, which reminds us of something we should always be reminded of, which is that things can change 
very quickly in politics. And usually the moment when you declare the death of a party is the moment you should buy, buy, buy into the stock of that party because things are going to change pretty quickly. So in Memphis in December of 1978, the Democrats are restless. They are unhappy with the lack of boldness from their president. Carter had been basically trapped by inflation and a weak economy. He'd been kind of snipping at the budget with those left-handed elementary school scissors with the rounded edges, not really doing much to the budget, but also not spending lots of money on great new efforts to help those in need. So Carter spoke in Memphis and didn't give people what they wanted to hear. He gave a kind of temporizing what would be considered a moderate democratic pitch. The person who did give the audience what they wanted to hear was Senator Ted Kennedy. On the question of health care, Carter had been concerned about the level of federal spending and so had said basically he wasn't going to do anything big on health care. Perhaps he would propose and support a catastrophic health care plan that would help people in dire need but would not cover everyone. But that's what Kennedy wanted. He wanted to cover everyone. And it was a perfect illustration of the split that would come to define this primary fight. And this is where we will ultimately in part two draw some kind of grand conclusion about what this says about the ongoing fight in the Democratic Party between the kind of Clinton wing, with whom I'm associating Carter here, the pragmatists, and then the liberal wing, with whom we can associate Teddy Kennedy, FDR, McGovern, etc. But at this meeting in Memphis in December 1978, Kennedy delivers a stemwinder of a speech calling health care the great unfinished business on the agenda of the Democratic Party. He also took issue with Carter's tentative leadership, saying sometimes he declared a party must sail against the wind. We cannot afford to drift or lie at anchor. We cannot heed the call of those who say it is time to furl the sail. Sometimes Kennedy said you had to sail into the wind, which was at the time the greatest record for the number of extended sailing metaphors used in politics by a politician named Ted. For Democrats, this speech was like Reagan's claim when he was making the conservative case against the Republican establishment that the Republican Party had to be one of bold colors and not pale pastels. This was Kennedy's version of that. And Hamilton Jordan, who was Carter's political brain, who had been the brains behind the operation that led to Carter's come from nowhere victory in 1976, heard this speech and turned to Carter's pollster, Pat Cadell, and said, the son of a bitch is going to run. Now, others thought he was giving this speech and making this attack as a way to get people to think he was going to run and then use that speculation about a primary challenge to build support for and gain leverage with Carter on the issue of health care. They didn't know at the time in December of 1978 whether this was an honest view of things or whether it was just strategy. But John Stacks, who writes about this campaign, noticed something else about that Kennedy speech that would be at the heart of Kennedy's issues as a candidate. And here's Stacks writing about that speech in Memphis. There was, however, something curious about Ted Kennedy's performance. He projected a sense of detachment, the feeling that he was watching someone else stir the passions of his audience. It was as if one Ted Kennedy had told another Ted Kennedy to give it his best performance, and as if the first Ted then stood back, enjoying immensely the theatricality of the more public Ted. The performance was nonetheless exciting, but the detachment of the performer robbed the speech of the kind of raw intensity that his brother Robert had been able to muster, full of the kind of emotion that could bring tears or cries of joy. John Kennedy had that same kind of distance from himself, but his speeches were cooler and more polished. It was as if Ted Kennedy could imitate both, but he could equal neither. That two parts of Ted Kennedy 
would come to be kind of a central question with Kennedy as a presidential candidate. Let's go from December of 1978 into the summer of 1979. Kennedy basically decides to join the race with Carter on such a low ebb and with everybody clamoring for Kennedy. As Gary Hart put it at the time, the American people are looking for a politician of stature, perhaps as a substitute for solutions. The idea being that Kennedy was just the conquering hero and Carter may have lots of solutions, but who cared about that? People wanted to be excited and energized. But there was a problem, the one that Stacks picked up on, which is that detachedness of Kennedy. There was the Kennedy, the myth, the son of the slain brothers and the heir to the great family's political legacy. And then there was Kennedy, the man, the politician, and all candidates have to suffer with the inevitable disconnect between the mythical qualities that people grant them and then the reality as they present it, as they are. That's why people always say that the best day for a candidate is the day before they announce. That's the day when they are still the vessel for the hopes and dreams of everybody and don't start that long, brutal trail of disappointments, which is the modern campaign. In Stax's book, he has a great vignette of the Florida State Controller, who is leading the draft Ted Kennedy movement. Stax writes, he began a nearly euphoric account of Ted Kennedy's qualities. Soon, however, it was clear he was not talking about just Ted Kennedy. Rather, he was talking about John Kennedy and Bob Kennedy. So people had rolled Kennedy into this combination of the entire family. And in the biographies about Kennedy... There is this clear sense that comes through that he felt the weight of all this expectation, that he kind of felt like he had to run because it was expected of him and everybody was calling on him to run. And so it's quite unclear that he has the kind of fire in the belly. And in part, I'm relying on some of this from The Last Lion, a great book about the rise and fall of Ted Kennedy. So regardless of Kennedy's ambivalence about himself and his run, Carter was not ambivalent. When it finally became the case that Kennedy was going to throw his hat in the ring, Carter told a group of senators visiting the White House, I'll whip his ass. The gulf between Kennedy's desires and the voters were also exacerbated by his curious speaking style. He could give a stemwinder like the healthcare speech, but then he could also produce a mushy pile of sonorous sounds that mimicked speech, but in their totality added up to a whole lot of nothing. Edward Fui, who just recently passed away, was a veteran TV producer who covered Kennedy for a number of different networks, said, quote, he couldn't articulate an English sentence. He was hopeless on the stump. How bad was it? The standards at NBC, where Fui worked at the time, required that someone take down word for word what the speaker says in any soundbite we're going to use on the evening news. The guy who did that took down something Kennedy said and then brought me what he'd written. You couldn't make any sense of it. All of this collided in a very famous interview with Roger Mudd of CBS, which came weeks before Kennedy was supposed to make his formal announcement in November of 1979. Mudd was a very tough journalist and in this hour-long CBS News special had pressed Kennedy on the question of the accident at Chappaquiddick where Mary Jo Kopechny had died when Kennedy was behind the wheel and his car went off the, the bridge. But the question that tripped Kennedy up was not a tough one about Chappaquiddick although that certainly didn't help his campaign, which we'll talk about in part two. The tough question was, why do you want to be president? Here's a clip from Mudd's program leading into that question and then the entire Kennedy answer. And 
to set it up, Kennedy's running as a bold leader, you know, behind whom the people can make a quick straight march into happiness and glory. So the answer in that context seemed excessively mushy. Why do you want to be president? Well, I'm... Uh, were I to, to make the, uh, the announcement and uh, to run, the reasons that I would run is because I have a great belief in this country that it is as more natural resources than any nation of the world, as the greatest educated population in the world, the greatest technology of any country in the world, uh, the greatest capacity for innovation in the world, and the greatest political system in the world. And yet uh, I see at uh, the current time that uh, most of the industrial nations of the world are exceeding us in terms of productivity, are doing better than us in terms of meeting the problems of inflation, that they're dealing with their problems of energy and their problems of unemployment. And it just seems to me that uh, this nation can cope and deal with its problems in a way that it has in the past. We're facing complex issues and problems in this nation at this time, but we have faced similar challenges at other times. And the energies and the resourcefulness of this nation, I think, should be focused on these problems in a way that uh, brings a sense of uh, restoration uh, in this country by its people to, in dealing with the problems that we face, primarily the issues on the economy, the problems of inflation, and the problems of um, uh, energy. And uh, I would uh, basically uh, feel that, uh, that it's imperative for this country to either move forward at a constant still, or otherwise it moves backward. The interview, which had shown on the same night as the movie Jaws, caused Republican Senator Bob Dole to quip, 75% of the country watched Jaws, 25% watched Roger Mudd, and half of them couldn't tell the difference. Carter thought it was a bad night for Kennedy, too. In his diary, he wrote, We watched a CBS special Sunday night about Kennedy, which I thought was devastating to him. It showed him not able to answer a simple question about what he would do if president. Bob Schrum, the political brain behind Kennedy and much of Kennedy's career, who will play a role in part two of this, describes the Mudd interview this way. The overture to his official announcement, he's talking about Kennedy here, that he was taking on Carter was an off-key, nationally televised, press-amplified train wreck of an interview that previewed the weakness of a Kennedy strategy based on the premise that since he was far ahead in the polls... He should measure his words carefully to avoid sounding too liberal or taking sharp issue positions. This strategy didn't fit the candidate. It made someone with a strong convictions awkwardly self-conscious about what he could and couldn't say. Edward Kennedy is the worst politician I've ever seen at saying nothing. So Shum's argument there is that Kennedy wasn't confused by the mud question. It wasn't that he hadn't thought through the mud question and didn't have an answer in his heart. He was just trying to position himself in a way that would appeal to some notion of the general electorate and what it wanted. So it wasn't authentic. The reason this is an interesting question is because if you are going to decide that Kennedy's loss and then Carter's loss in the general election are the end of liberalism – 
then you have to decide whether Kennedy really lost in a battle of ideas or whether he was just a disaster as a candidate or, and there's a third thing, he could have been a disaster of candidate. And then in part two, we'll learn about the external events which affected this race. And so it may very well not be a fair test of that ideology. And the reason that's important is, of course, is the people who believe in what Kennedy believed would like it to be protected from an actual test by the electorate. We'll take a look at all of that as the campaign gets underway in earnest and Kennedy comes alive enough to fight Carter all the way to the conventions after this crash on the launch pad start. Our story has a couple of more twists and turns, including a dramatic convention fight with robots. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistle Stop. Send us an email at whistlestop at slate.com. That's whistlestop at slate.com. We have our own email address now. Or even better, maybe not better, but do both. Leave a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Head over to iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts and look for Whistle Stop. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Whistle Stop is a part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who knows exactly why he's running for president and who can be credited with making the wise choice of splitting this episode in two. I will be back in two weeks with more Tales from the Trail and part two of the 1980 Democratic fight for the nomination, unless events cause us to slip a different Whistle Stop in there, which I doubt, but regardless of what we decide... I still am John Dickerson. Thanks for listening. Uh-huh.